Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined by our Editor-in-Chief, Mark Kelly. Good afternoon. Glad you're here, Mark. Glad I'm here, too. In between two trips. One to D.C. yesterday and off to Boston tomorrow, so. And you came back. I came back. Well, I'm glad you're here. So, what's going on today? What do you mean? Who's our guest? Oh, who's our guest? <laughs> it was such a general question, yeah. We are really happy to have as our guest Robin Fretwell-Wilson, who is the uh, Roger and Stephanie Jocelyn Professor of Law at the College of Law at the University of Illinois, where she directs the College of Law's Family Law and Policy Program and the Epstein Health Law and Policy Program. She directs the Fairness for All Initiative, which seeks to provide tangible support and advice to thought leaders, stakeholders, policymakers, and state and local legislators who seek balanced approaches that respect both LGBT rights and religious freedom. I'm really happy to have you on, Robin. Thanks for joining us. Sure, this has been a busy week for you, huh, Robin? Yes, I actually just returned from Central European University where we were talking about issues like this, and then masterpiece on Monday, which I thought was my day off. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, really, Supreme Court, you have to be (laughs) handing out opinions at that day? Yeah, I thought it might be the end of the month. It seems like they do the blockbuster moments at the end of the month, and I would have put this in that category, although in some ways it's a blockbuster and it's not. So I guess we'll be talking about that. We will be, because I had a similar reaction to you. But before we get into all that, we do need to tell people what we're talking about. All right. So the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled on the biggest religious liberty case of the year. In a 7-2 vote, the court sided with the Christian baker who declined to decorate a cake for a same-sex wedding. The baker, Jack Phillips, who had provided cakes for gay customers in other circumstances, argued that making a cake for a same-sex wedding would be an endorsement of the marriage and a violation of his beliefs. In a narrow ruling, the court stated that the penalties a Colorado commission had levied against Jack Phillips violated his First Amendment rights. In the court's opinion, Anthony Kennedy wrote that, quote, Phillips was entitled to a neutral decision maker who would give full and fair consideration to his religious objection as he sought to assert in all of the circumstances in which this case was presented, considered, and decided. Before the verdict was announced, many had predicted that it would impact wedding vendors, including photographers, florists, and bakers across the country, who do not want to service same-sex celebrations because of their religious convictions on marriage. Today on Quick to Listen, we'd like to break down what this ruling will indeed mean for these individuals and what it tells us about the current religious liberty climate here in the U.S. So before we get into this discussion, just like to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And if you subscribe now, you are going to get our June issue. And you can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. Is there something about this June issue that you'd like to highlight for our listeners, Mark? Well, at the risk of sounding self-serving, I I am pretty happy with our editorial, which I wrote. Oh, yeah? Which is, God hates violence. 
why we must work urgently to reduce gun deaths in our land. And I recommend it not because it's the be-all and end-all of this conversation, but I do try to lay out what I consider to be a common-sense approach that I'm hoping uh, gun owners, of which I count myself as one, I enjoy skeet shooting, clay shooting, and those who are interested in protecting the lives of American citizens would, would find some middle ground to, uh, to make some compromises on. But I have had some, I've had some enthusiastic applause and, of course, some criticism, and that's to be expected. And uh, actually, I had some criticism this morning from a Texas pastor. It was the most pleasant, critical conversation I've had in a long time. He was such a charitable person and approached me with great respect and argued his points awfully well and with a generous spirit, but we just had to agree to disagree. So I do welcome that kind of, kind of pushback to help deepen my thinking on this matter as well. So anyway, that editorial is in the, in the June issue, and I encourage you to subscribe and read that essay. And give, seriously, give me your feedback. Kind of the first time that CT has said anything editorially about guns for nearly for two time. decades. Uh, I know that because I've pushed one yeah, out yeah, for the yeah. past, the same one. <laughs> okay. For all the, after all no, the mass been, shootings, no, I've no, passed it was 1999, I think. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that's right. That is two decades now. I, I, I lose track of time. <laughs> I won't tell you how old I was then. Okay. All right. So if you'd like to read Mark's editorial because you're tired of reading the 1999 one, you can do that by becoming a subscriber to CT. Again, order ct.com slash quick to listen. All right, Mark. So let's do a little gut check on this ruling, which, again, was like really hyped up. I think we were among some of the people that were hyping it up, too, as far as like what it was going to mean. So I'm curious. Did the court deliver something worthy of the hype? <laughs> well, if you're looking for a quick reaction, my quickest reaction, of course, was positive. I, I naturally, as editor-in-chief of a religious magazine, I'm interested in protecting the religious liberty and religious conscience of people. But I also know enough about Supreme Court rulings that it may, may or may not mean as much as I'd like it to mean. So uh, initial reaction was pleasantly surprised, and the second was, okay, let's find out what exactly this implies and doesn't imply for future similar cases, and that's why I thought it was a good idea for us to have a episode of Quick to Listen on it. I think my gut check was a very strange... Hmm. That was my gut check, because I wasn't exactly sure what exactly got accomplished. I'm sure we'll get into this more, but as was noted in the summary that I read earlier... It's basically like, well, to me, it seems like they basically just made a decision about this, like, one particular incident that happened, you know, with regards to Phillips. And so my big question is, like, well, why would they, well, you know, why would the Supreme Court even take this if they were just going to make such a narrow decision? And what does this actually mean? So anyway, we get to talk about that today, which is fantastic. Yeah. So please tell us, Robin, what does this mean? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I kind of want to start with the question you just asked, which is why take this? Yes. And I think actually, in all fairness to the court, until you dig into that record and have oral argument, when you're seeing the petition, you're looking at, you know, which is for review um, or certiorari, you're looking at the fact that it's an important case and, um, you know, the court can use it to resolve questions that are you know, likely to arise or in which there'll be splits and, and that type of thing. But until they get into it, they won't necessarily know that there is as much evidence as they found here that Phillips wasn't given a fair shake. It was like he he and he alone, because we can't say what's happening with Baron on Stutzman and Washington, which is still knocking on the Supreme Court's door. 
you know, or any other person. But with respect to him, it looks like he wasn't given a fair shake in Kennedy's view. And Kennedy marshals, you know, two separate pieces of evidence about. So I think even though ultimately at the end of the day, it may be a disappointment to people who've been holding their breath, looking for a great victory on one side or the other, they have to follow the law. And if, if Phillips wasn't given a fair shake, um, then he isn't being treated like, treated fairly in terms of his ability to exercise his religion. And, you know, they need to, to remedy that for him. So many people who are on the religious liberty side of this have been celebrating and hailing this as a victory. And obviously this has worked its way up through the court system over a period of months. And so it's been it's been going on for a long time. On a scale of one to 10, how big of a victory is this, though? Well, there is a symbolic victory, which is, you know, somebody who was at the center to a change, um, who holds, by the way, a traditional view of marriage that in the last set of, you know, public polls, 51% of Americans agreed with, which is that marriage is between, you know, one man and one woman. And so in that sense, it seems to feel like a vindication to many people that there's still room for traditional values and that the law has to evince respect for all people, not just necessarily the minorities who I personally believe do need protection from discrimination, but that that's a, a very nuanced enterprise that really is one about pluralism where all of us have to have room to coexist. So in that sense, there's like a principle that gets affirmed, I think, and, you know, a sense of respect that's given to um, traditional religious beliefs around marriage. On the legal side, ain't a whole lot here to see. Just honestly, they're applying something that's in our free exercise jurisprudence to him and to him alone. Uh, and that's the idea that, you know, if the state does pass a neutral rule of general applicability that happens to have the incidental effect of burdening religion, it can do that consistent with, you know, free exercise guarantees in the First Amendment. And that's good law under a case called Employment Division versus Smith. But the one thing it can't do is it can't go about harshing on religion specifically and targeting religious belief specifically or passing on what's a good religious belief from a bad religious belief specifically. And that's what Kennedy ultimately faults the Civil Rights Commission in Colorado, and in particular, one commissioner for having said some, some really sort of unfortunate things about Jack Phillips's specific religious belief. I want to just actually talk about this commission for a second, because as we know from the case, this was a case that was between Jack Phillips and between this Colorado commission. It wasn't between Jack Phillips and a same-sex couple who did not have their cake made. So why was it against this commission? What is this commission's role in the case? Why was, why were, why was Jack Phillips and this commission at odds to begin with? Well, so a number of states in the United States, um, 18, have passed non-discrimination laws that say you can't discriminate in public accommodations, so think restaurants or other public spaces, based on completely irrelevant stuff like your gender identity or your sexual orientation. Now, many people would say that's not irrelevant. I personally think it is irrelevant. But the legislature in those states took the special steps of saying, we think there's discrimination in our state based on these things that we see as irrelevant. And so we're going to guarantee people full and, and equal enjoyment of, um, you know, public facilities. 
And then the question became, did that law, which was put in place long before marriage equality came on the scene anywhere, which is true, these things were all put in place before marriage equality, could it be used to look at this question with respect to the case, uh, to, to the cake and the, and the decision that he made to step off from doing the cake for this couple? So that's where we sort of land. And and the Civil Rights Commission is charged with enforcing that law on behalf of the state. And so it was their decision when um, Charlie Craig and David Mullins said, what the hell happened here? I didn't get a cake. It was their decision to pursue, to first figure out whether this had violated Colorado law, and then second, figure out what to do about that. And part of what they did and their their sort of you know toolkit of remedies was really pretty significant. They told Phillips that he had to undergo comprehensive staff training, that he had to change his business practices, that he had to file quarterly compliance reports for like two years because, in their view, his view of marriage was, and I hear I'm quoting from them, despicable and merely rhetorical. And it was that that sort of sent Kennedy over the edge because for Kennedy that was eventing a tremendous disrespect for these people, right, for Phillips and his view, as opposed to what whatever Phillips was doing vis-a-vis someone else. And that, to me, seems to still puts this decision in a category of significant, because in many settings, other than before standing before a commission like this, but in many other settings in our country, I've heard story after story where uh, religious people are not are not even permitted to bring forth their religious arguments without being denigrated for that. And I think what the Supreme Court basically says: this is a legitimate argument. You may not agree with it, but it's 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 part of the national conversation, and it is a legitimate part of any type of argument we might we might be having. And that strikes me as a, a significant symbol in that regard. Yeah, no, that's a real thing. I mean, they erased the penalties that Colorado levied at this baker for, in effect, abiding by his faith? And it's a really important question because some people would say, if you don't want to do the cake, it's because the folks in front of you are gay. And in a sense, you see you see Kennedy sort of parsing here and saying, this was a respectable view by a person who, quote, not unreasonably could believe that it was legal because same-sex marriage wasn't even recognized by the state of Colorado at that time. Now, he also does say, though, might be different if it happened today. And that's kind of a, a little bit of a, a wet cloth on the idea of respectability. Because I see. If it's, yeah. you know, do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. you know, yeah. same-sex marriage is legal today, and these folks rocked into his business today. Would he be reasonable in believing that that was a legal response? You know, question yes, question no, right? It's possible. There's a big, big question that's looming is, to some extent, the state officials could have acted better here. And we don't know what would have happened if they were weighing what is now seen as a respectable view. I mean, that is, you're right that, you know, they are sort of standing up for the respectability of the view, but they're still not telling you whether that view supersedes the state's interest in here, I'm reading from the decision, in shielding gay persons from indignities when they seek goods and services in an open market. They don't tell you in that straight up context. Right. right. No, that's fair. Without animus infusing this, they don't tell you, hey, what, how's that going to look? Exactly. So that may, that's why the case, the, this whole issue is still up in the air at one level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm curious, do you see any other areas where you think that the LGBT 
community might also have found reason to, I don't know, cheer is probably too strong of a word, but maybe take solace in some of the things that the court said? Well, you know, I think there's solace here for everybody, and especially solace for Americans who believe that we can live together peacefully, right? But, you know, in the under the heading of, you know, LGBT rights, he's really, really clear. He says the laws and the Constitution can, and in some instances, must protect LGBT persons in the exercise of their civil rights. And he sort of paints some guardrails around the idea that religion, you know, can be put at odds with that commitment. And I can come back to the guardrails in a second. But he also says the same sort of thing to persons of faith, not only this sort of symbolic view, but he literally says religious and philosophical objections to gay marriage are protected views and in some instances protected forms of expression. And so, and and something I was writing this morning, I sort of thought that Kennedy is writing a, a kind of script for a new form of pluralism in America, where he's 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 serious that both of these values can both can be respected, and it seems to me it, it, the goal is to reconcile them in the law and not have this be one side wins, and so that means the other always loses. Well, that's that's encouraging if that's, in fact, you think what's happening, because I, when we wrote an editorial on this some months two ago, ago, two years ago, that was one of the points it was that I made. Not, I, I made it not as a legal scholar, because I don't know how this thing would work out, but I said, it just seems to me it's reasonable to suppose that we can figure out a way to adjudicate these things till we respect the rights of gays and lesbians and other uh, minorities, uh, sexual minorities, and the, the religious conscience of people. So my hope would be what you what you just said about what he's looking for. I'm I'm hoping we can figure that out. Well, can we talk about some of those guardrails? You know, he says, for example, you know, he he's 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 saying obviously religious views have to be respected, uh, that they have protection in the law. And and then he says though that exceptions, and here I think he means for religious believers, can't be so unbounded and they can't be used so much that they result in quote, community-wide stigma inconsistent with the history and dynamics of civil rights law that ensure equal access. And he even says it in a line or two later. He says, look, this would be no different than people putting up signs saying no goods or services are going to be sold for gay marriage here. That, for him, is a bridge too far. It would impose a serious stigma, he says, on gay persons. But it's not telling you that Every single baker in America has to bake every single cake for every couple who presents and they ignore whether they're gay now, right? Just everybody who presents because we get jammed up in time and, you know, scheduling and the amount of business or we're down on staff or whatever happens. I think what he's saying is you have to regulate the business so that gay people aren't just excluded from public life. But the misstep would be to have those rules constructed in a way that they exclude religious people from public life. Both people can be excluded, right? If we write in our laws, which arguably you could say Colorado's law was because it was written before marriage equality ever came on the scene. It couldn't have been written with this problem in mind. So I think, you know, this is a clarion call from Kennedy to try to write new scripts for living together. He describes what they look like. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How 
did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Earlier, you mentioned uh, that it is permissible for the government to actually put a burden on religious people under some circumstances. Would you give examples of how that's happened? Yeah, I mean, he even talks about the sort of weighing. Um, you know, they didn't engage in this weighing. Instead, they seemed to just pass judgment about a religious view they didn't like. But if they had engaged in this weighing, they might have said, we so believe that the the cost of exclusion to a traditionally repressed minority are so great that uh, we don't see a way in which religious objections um, can be respected in that instance. That would be one way. Now, I think that's the old script. Those are the older kinds of laws that we've been writing that aren't consciously trying to share the public square. But, um, you know, in the, in, the, in the classic religious freedom context, think about the Amish driving their buggies at night, okay? So, you know, um, some states, Kentucky, wanted them to put orange triangles on the back of their buggies, and that would be seen as a restriction by them of their religious freedom because the triangle being orange is considered to be flashy. So it doesn't really fit with the religious tradition. So what would the what would a neutral rule be? You have to have an orange triangle, not a gray one, not a lantern inside, um, because we don't think that our societal values and safety and, and being able to see at night can be affirmed. Now, notice what I just said, though. If you would be willing to put a gray triangle on and put a lantern inside the buggy, it would be possible for the state both to hopefully respect the religious beliefs of the Amish and at the same time meet their own societal needs. That's the general project in all of our laws, that we ought to be able to respect religious believers in our midst, even when we don't really completely understand where they're coming from, because it's a good thing to let them be who they are and to be true to who they are. It seems like a reasonable way forward. We want to talk about how we do that with the baker and the clerk and, and folks like that. Yeah, what are some op- what are some options out there? Yeah. Well, so so think about the Utah Compromise, and I mean, just like full disclosure, I assisted the legislature with enacting that law, but that law, it was a two-bill package, but those laws gave more rights to the LGBT community and housing and hiring non-discrimination than that community has in New York expressly at the time that the Utah Compromise was enacted. And that's from the single most conservative state in America, second most religious state in America. And they squarely dealt with questions like Kim Davis and religious objectors. But rather than saying religious people who find themselves in these jobs get fired or gay people get humiliated, do you remember when Kim Davis wouldn't serve those folks and they were just made to stay there and wait for days and she shut down marriage to everybody for days, right? Mm-hmm. None of that had to come to pass either. Instead, what, what Utah did is they said, We're going to allow this duty, which we're imposing on people for the first time in Utah law, to be dispatched first by any willing clerk. 
read people, you know, that don't have a religious objection. And then second, if there are folks outside the clerk's office that are authorized celebrants in state law to solemnize relationships, think mayors, judges, I don't know, um, Unitarian ministers, if, if there are people who are willing to be available to the office on the same basis for everybody to provide that solemnization, then the office can choose to use those folks. And if neither one of those two things work, then we'll make the elected town clerk do it. And they're elected, and at the end of the day, the state has to provide access to marriage on the same basis to everybody. Now, because Utah like found a creative solution, nobody's been fired, and no gay people have been treated differently. So it's possible to write these scripts that are you know, what I call peaceful coexistence scripts. And I think Kennedy is sort of writing a roadmap to exactly those kinds of scripts. He says, both communities lay claim to protection of the law for their dignity and their worth. Nobody should be disparaged, he says, whether you're gay or you're religious. So he's sort of creating a parody of treatment is what we should be aiming at. This type of um, idea of both communities getting the type of protection that they are looking for is seems like it's like the the tenet of what you're trying to do with this fairness for all initiative. Have the ideas of this initiative caught on in other states? Well, I mean it's it's tough sledding, right? Because to some extent when you have the Supreme Court take a case like Masterpiece, it stalls all the work in state legislatures where people really are trying to write those new scripts because they think well, maybe this is going to be, you know, kind of swamped by the Supreme Court. There's going to be a different result reached. And in any event, why should we spend political capital trying to figure something out when the court's going to do it for us? And, there, you know, there's to some extent a, a kind of pernicious outcome from the fact that as Americans, we like to litigate so many things. We, But when we're litigating, we're litigating under laws that were written without these problems in mind. So it's like we have the wrong tools to try to reach the kind of parity of treatment that Kennedy seems to envision here. But there are states, a number of states where stakeholders in the LGBT community and the faith communities are coming together and asking how they can both respect the other in a more thick way and the laws in those states. And I think that they're going to be successful in that enterprise. Yeah, it seems like both sides have to kind of be willing to give a little bit, which is not necessarily the attitude that we've seen over the past, I don't know, half decade or so when it's come to religious freedom versus LGBT rights cases. Well, but see, but I think the fallacy is we are guessing or gauging whether that's true based on litigation. Litigation is, you know, very adversarial by its very terms and nature. It is, it delivers, I win, you lose answers. One of us wins, the other one loses. I mean, in Phillips' case, he won, and the, the couple, it feels like the people in that community lost, right? But when you're talking about state measures that sort of follow the script that Kennedy has painted, those aren't I win, you lose. Go back to the clerk. The clerk doesn't get fired, and gay people don't get treated differently. Nobody lost. Everybody won. It's possible to write those kinds of rules. So I think people will. So in in some ways, then you might say that this decision ends up being really hopeful because it opens the door for more of those types of solutions. Yeah, actually, I think in some sense, he's he's pushing people along that path. You know, it's funny, we in law school teach that courts only reach the case and controversy in front of them. 
but the decision actually reads as if it's a kind of map to what legislatures around the country ought to be doing. Yeah, and hopefully that will it will be a model. I mean, one of the things the law does is that it can shape shape a people morally and, and in terms of their manners. I think most people would agree it, it would be an unreasonable thing for me as a Christian to go to a person who was a devout, let's say, Orthodox Jew, modern Orthodox Jew who was a baker, and ask him to bake me a cake with a crucifix on it. Most people would recognize that even if I had the, the legal right to do that, that it might be better not to ask him to do that, but to find someone else to do it. And vice versa, if someone comes in and uh, you, for some reason you cannot give them a service uh, because of your religious convictions, it does seem reasonable to, to say to them, look, I don't agree with you, I don't agree with what you're trying to do, but here are some alternative services, other people who, who are willing to do it. And I mean, it just seems like there's just an everyday life if we can figure out ways to, uh, to live together like that in a pluralistic environment. It just, we wouldn't have to go to court so much. <laughs> Right. We wouldn't need all the lawyers we're producing. But look, on on this one point, I, I do think that the primary good of anti-discrimination law, go back to the 60s and, you know, the Civil Rights Act, was how terrible it felt to people to be told you're not going to be served at this lunch counter. So I think when we, we look at at the values of the laws that we were enacting, put aside scope for a second, put aside unintended consequences. The core value was a badge of citizenship and belonging, that I sit at the counter with you and other people, and I'm treated well. Now, what does that tell you about this debate today? The core good is being able to go into the shop and be served, it, but it doesn't tell you who bakes the cake. In other words, we can regulate businesses and should sometimes, right, because of the dislocation and the harm and the stigma from being turned away from a shop on Main Street, just like you were turned away from the lunch counter. But it doesn't tell you that Jack Phillips is the one that has to bake your cake. You know, we all know we could hire a new employee, but for the tiniest businesses, that's like an existential cost. I mean, it could be the difference between closing and staying open. But we need to give them tools in the toolkit to discharge the duties that are placed on business, right? So it's, it's your point, Mark, that we should find ways to live together. But I think when it comes to, to, to sort of the, the stigma and the harm of being excluded, we've got to be very careful to make sure that businesses take all comers and then we find business owners ways to discharge those duties. Yeah, just a clarification about this Utah situation that you talked about. The examples that you had given were ones that were based on what the government was now going to be doing when it came to issuing marriage licenses, for instance. But I'm assuming there were also some um, expectations for businesses as well. You know, funny about that, they did not regulate public accommodation. So they reached two hard issues. The idea that everybody should have a place to live and a way to make a living. So housing and hiring because of a wrinkle in, in Utah's experience. They had no municipality anywhere in Utah that had ever regulated public accommodations with respect to sexual orientation and gender identity. And, you know, Utah is a very conservative state, a very Republican state. And I think for many of those legislators, they only want to sort of regulate a field where they have the advantage of what local lawmakers had done before them, right? That they could learn from sort of more local experiments and regulating. And they didn't have that. So they just left that to the side for another day. So it sounds like that's kind of like the next step in building out 
this type of work? Yeah, I think so. I mean, because most states in America, there are critical masses of people living in municipalities, right? Even on questions of LGBT non-discrimination laws or Religious Freedom Restoration Acts, for that matter. There are 22 states with those, and the rest don't have them, right? So we have kind of a red-blue America. Well, within a state, you have the same phenomenon in many places where you have, you know, a third, 40%, maybe as much as 50% of the state living under municipal um, SOGI or sexual orientation, gender identity, non-discrimination law that makes no room for religion. And then the rest of the state has no SOGI and leaves no room for gay people. And so with the state becomes a microcosm for what's happening nationally around the exact same question. And in those states that, that are living with, with that kind of checkerboard of injustice to somebody, you know, I think they're going to find ways that try to make both communities well. So I think long before we see a national compromise around these things, we'll see states act. So what would you say is next in this discussion, I guess, that we're having? You had mentioned that there was a case from Washington that was moving through the courts. Yeah, the, um, well, it's already there. It's, it's it's asking to be heard in the same way that Phillips' decision was asking to be heard. I, if I had to guess, and I don't know, I would think they would leave that one alone for a while to let, you know, sometimes when the court makes big decisions, they like the lower courts and the intermediary courts to be able to process and have those things that were said percolate. You know, and sometimes there is a lot being said here about um, the respect, as Mark said, that we need to give to religious beliefs in America. And so maybe that needs to be processed by local civil rights commissions, state civil rights commissions, and others before they take up the case. I will tell you, there is one thing that's looming that I think is so much more significant than the Baker, and not not to take anything from Mr. Phillips or the couple that were turned away. But we are watching a collision unfold around adoption placement agencies and religious adoption social services agencies in particular, where I really think we've dragged kids into a culture war and we need to backpedal as quickly as we can. We need to find ways in which no couples are turned away from adopting and then no no adoption agencies are forced to close. So I think that you're going to see a shifting of of grounds around all of these things to a different a different context, but one that I think is actually really incredibly important and widespread. Unlike the bakers, there might be 12 bakers around all of America. There are hundreds of thousands of kids being placed for adoption by religious adoption agencies today, and we need those agencies to continue to do work, and we need gay couples to continue to adopt. So what you're talking about here is states that have um, essentially said that they are not going to cooperate with religiously run adoption agencies that don't believe in placing these children with a heterosexual married couple? Or not a heterosexual married couple. Yeah, they only want to make what exactly. But but yeah, I'm talking about that. But I'm not only talking about states that want to have a non-discrimination principle applied to everybody. I'm talking about states that have protected the religious adoption social services agencies, but um, and and protected only them, and haven't really brought on board how deeply hurtful it can be to people to show up to an agency and be told not you. Well, I'm an adopted child, so my mom and dad adopted in 1966, 
And if my father had shown up at an agency and had been told for any reason, not you, you know, I don't think they would have gone back somewhere. You know, that's just, a, it's deeply personal to adopt. I mean, in his case, it was, you know, my family having to grapple with infertility. That's a really personal, you know, wound for many people. Um, and then to have the, the courage to go adopt and be turned away. I mean, that's tough. And on the other side, we have agencies that are carrying something like 25% of a social services placement load in particular states. We can't mean to close them. So we have to start over and find one of these scripts that Kennedy is talking about, where we affirm religious belief and we affirm the dignity of couples who are stepping up to adopt these children. We just need a better way. Well, thank you for giving all of this to us to ponder, Robin. I remind everyone that they can let us know what they think via email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com, or you can go on Twitter and we're at CT Podcasts. All right, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, when everyone gets to share something that is bringing them joy this week. Mark? Well, this week, as I said, I just came back from uh, Washington, D.C., and I was at uh, the an annual Jewish Evangelical Dialogue that we hold there. It runs from noon on Monday till noon on Tuesday, the first week in June. And it is one of the more uh, amicable conversations I have during the year. We're able to be really frank with one another about what we think about everything from theology and Bible and Torah to what's going on in Israel, how to approach various and sundry social issues that affect both of us. Yeah, we often come to the point of just having to agree to disagree, but the type of conversation we have does two things. It allows us to uh, think more deeply about what we actually, what we believe, and it does help us nuance our beliefs. And it's a good model of how uh, it seems to me more and more conversations in the United States ought to take place with people about with whom you have some fundamental disagreements. And these two groups have some fundamental disagreements, believe me. <laughs> All right. Where can people find you when you're not doing the podcast? I am the uh, author of a newsletter called The Galley Report. It's published every week. It's a series of links with commentary, and you can get that by going to christianitytoday.com slash the galley report, G-A-L-L-I report. And you can read a recent edition, see if you'd like to subscribe. Cool. All right, Robin. So my moment of happiness in the last week was being able to travel with my mom, who, um, you know, has done so much, actually, to sort of change the whole arc of my life. And so I took her on a river cruise um, that started in Basel, Switzerland, and ended in Amsterdam. And then I set her on a plane to return home while I went to talk about these kinds of questions, but especially the adoption question and how hard it is. Were there any highlights from your cruise? Yeah, I mean, just it was nice to spend days with my mom walking around Amsterdam. Don't necessarily want to take your mom to Amsterdam. <laughs> parts of it that are nicer. Parts, parts you don't take your mom to. Um, and so, yeah, no, we just had a terrific time. It was really good. I, I'm, I linked to a, uh, a video about Amsterdam's bike culture. Was that in evidence yeah. while you were there? Oh my gosh, yes. In fact, we were just taking pictures of like the thousands and thousands of bikes. Um, it's, you know, we'd all do so much better to have a culture of health in the United States that like looked like Amsterdam in that respect. So yeah, it was, it was, it was really interesting. And also the walking. I mean, we just, some days walking eight, nine miles. That's pretty good for not only me, but for my mother who's 83. Oh yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Well, M Morgan is our poster child for uh, bike commuting. She bikes commutes, combination 
public train and biking to get in get to our offices from Chicago, which is forty five oh. minutes by car. So it's twenty five miles altogether. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I'm supposed I was supposed to bike to work today, and I did not because I went to sleep too late last night. Like in terms of biking from home, because <laughs> I yeah I have to do that to train for this triathlon that I'm doing. So we'll see. Robin, can people find you online somewhere? Yeah, just to, just uh, at my name, Robin Fretwell Wilson. So F R E T W E L L Wilson dot com, and that will take you to the adoption work that we're doing, or a little bit about it, and the fairness for all, and the state work. And then we're also doing something really interesting. But we are having dialogues around the country, not unlike the one Mark just described, having with people, uh, you know, that have a different faith commitment. And one thing that's really interesting is we're trying to elevate millennials and their voices because I think they're going to figure these things out. You know, they live with a lot of diversity and they're friends and they don't seem to give up on who they are, notwithstanding. And they're building out ways for other people to be true to who they are while they're true to who they are. And so at any rate, we're giving scholarships for students to write about tolerance. And we'd love to do one of these at a university near you. We pay for everything. Yeah, all we need is a stage and some goodwill. Well, very cool. My precious moment is rediscovering my favorite childhood craft of doing cross stitch. I increasingly just like want to have something to work on. And I tweeted a couple weeks ago about wanting to do this in one of my coworkers, or I guess our coworkers, mine and Mark's. Her name is Claudia. She does tons of cross stitch and she has taken it upon herself to help me do this hobby, which is great. She gave me like fabric and embroidery floss and the pattern. So I'm really excited to return to this hobby and hopefully do it consistently when I'm at home. Yeah, because I'm really worried about you that you don't have enough to do in your off hours, you know? Yeah. Biking, running for a marathon. <laughs> Mark, you literally just told us that you went to D.C. yesterday and you're going to Boston tomorrow. Yes, Mr. Sit Still. <laughs> Come on. Pot calling the kettle black. That's what I say. All right. I'm on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. You can get this podcast on Apple Podcasts, which is where we ask you to rate and review the show. So thank you to everyone who has done that. This podcast is produced by Richard Clark, Cray Allred, and myself. And we will see you all next week. Bye.